Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. Hey there, welcome back to SocialCast. I'm Derek. And I'm Lance. And today, as I was driving over here to record this episode in the middle of the daytime, which is a time I'm not usually on the road, I noticed a startling number of new houseless encampments along my route. Have you noticed new encampments? I don't know if I would say I've noticed new encampments. I have seen an increase in the ones that I frequently pass by. There is this one stretch on 122nd where they just seem to move up and down the street as police come through and purge one encampment and then they all just move to another one. And then they eventually move back after that one gets cleared out and it's just this yo-yo back and forth. I do think it's pretty important to point out that the city of Portland hasn't been moving houseless camps for the duration of the pandemic just to make sure that they're not inadvertently spreading disease from one area to another. But I I definitely think that when we're talking about houselessness, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of space in that conversation that's taken up by the police and the criminalization of houselessness and people doing what they need to do to survive. Because when we're talking about houselessness, that's literally what we're talking about is baseline survival. These aren't folks who are trying to thrive. These are not people who think that this is the best life they are ever going to have. Well, they probably think that it's the best they're ever going to At, at that point, yeah. it's They're probably thinking, this is the rest of my life is but going it, to be this. For a lot of people, it's definitely not something that they sought out. Like, no little kid grows up and says, I'm going to live in a tent on the side of the freeway. No. And so that is, is what we're going to talk about today, is houselessness. And more specifically, why housing is seen in socialism as a foundational human right and the ways that capitalism has woven its tentacles into our our various systems to completely commodify every aspect of the human existence for the purposes of this episode and this conversation in general housing is defined as any permanent structure with four external walls, a roof, a kitchen, a bathroom, and a locking door that is generally secure from the elements. Is there anything you want to add to that? 
I think that's a very accurate uh, description of what I would consider. And, like, I, I have lived in this situation before. Like, I have lived in what you just described, basic four external walls, the, you know, a designated kitchen or a cooking area, a designated bathroom, and then kind of a general space where you can put a bed and a couch or maybe even just a bed. And, like, I've lived in that apartment and no, it's not comfy, but it is secure. I was able to sleep. I was able to go to work. I was able to use the internet. I was able to maintain my personal hygiene. So I would say, you know, that's that's what I would consider the starting point for housing. You know, nowadays, that is not where I live. I live in a larger place. But that that is where I would consider the minimum to start. And that was what I was going for. I literally just described mm -hmm. a studio apartment. Yeah, it's that's all it is, you know, 250 to 300 square feet, minimally accessible, you get a door and a window, and that's it. So for a lot of folks, when we're talking about houselessness and housing as a human right, they think, oh, I'm going to have to live with homeless people. And that's not at all what we're talking about. We'll get into a lot of the, the more statistical stuff in a little bit after we discuss why housing should be seen as a human right. Um, but this isn't socialists saying, hey, you're going to have to share your house with strangers. This is socialists saying, hey, the way that we approach housing is completely backwards and we need to reevaluate how we're looking at housing, how we're allocating housing, and how we're letting people sleep on the side of freeways in fucking tents. Well, and to, to build on that example that you gave, like, we're not going to be going up to, you know, Nancy and John homeowner in the middle of the suburbs in their eight-bedroom, four-bath McMansion in a homeowners association and saying, oh, you're going to have to give up at least two of your bedrooms so these homeless people can come and live with you. It's going to be, hey, why are there these 10 empty apartments that no one lives in and we have 500 people on the side of the freeway in tents or not in tents? Why is that, you know, we don't need to be wary or be worried about Oh, I might have to give up part of my house so these other people can live. If that's what if that's what we're talking about, no, I don't want that. Well, that's not what anyone's talking about. We're talking about taking existing, real. Uh, oh my God, I just lost my brain. <laughs> we're talking about real, actual dwellings that are currently in existence that are currently open and taking real, actual people who currently don't have a residence, who don't have a dwelling, and putting two and two together. So after defining what housing is, I think it's, it's kind of essential to talk about why housing should be seen as a human right. And it's because it is absolutely foundational to literally everything else that we do as human beings. Without stable housing, it is almost impossible to find a job. People expect that you're going to have a permanent address that you can receive mail at from your job that also gives employers a concept that you are stable. 
that giving you an opportunity to work for them is not going to be something that turns out to be a poor choice. Um, without climate-controlled housing, it's practically impossible to store food safely. You can't keep dairy or meat fresh without refrigeration. You can't prepare food to safe food temperatures without an oven. I mean, you can do it with fire, but it's much more slapdash. I mean, yes, you can technically prepare food over an open fire, but we live in the Pacific Northwest. Do you think today I could have been running an open fire during torrential downpours? No. So I would have been left eating either ingredients that don't need to be prepared or not eating would have been my other option if I didn't have an indoor stove. Yeah. Or eating raw meat. Mmm. No. Isn't that sound tasty? Without the ready availability of hygiene facilities, like a, a bathroom and a shower that housing offers, the risk of disease increases in a lot of cases pretty exponentially. Some, some statistics for common infections. So in the houseless population, there is a, an incidence rate of 6.2% to 35% for HIV. And that's a really large window, but it's because the houseless population fluctuates so wildly, literally from one day to the next in normal times, that keeping track of folks that are, are the baseline for this kind of study is really challenging. So 6.2% to 35% of houseless people have HIV, and that compares to 0.49% of the rest of the population. For hepatitis B virus, it's 17 to 30%, which is pretty on track with the, the actual statistic for everyone. One in three people is, is carrying HBV. Hepatitis C is a little different. It's 12 to 30% of houseless people have a hepatitis C virus infection and 0.02% of the population does. And the houseless population also has a 1.2 to 6.8% active tuberculosis infection rate compared to 3% for everyone else. So I just want to chime in real quick on tuberculosis because that's something I encounter quite frequently in my work in the real world um, where this is a problem that is not going to be solved with temporary or uh, congregant housing. So your shelters, emergency housing, those sorts of situations. Tuberculosis thrives in a crowded situation. So if we take this group of people where maybe you have one person with tuberculosis and you bring them into a shelter with 50 other people who don't have tuberculosis, now you have 51 people who have tuberculosis. Whereas if you had taken those 51 people and put them into 51 studio apartments, you would still only have the one with tuberculosis who in our socialist idea now has access to healthcare and can be treated for it. And now we have zero people with tuberculosis. A perfect point. 
Thank you. Uh, last medical statistic, 3.8 to 56% of houseless individuals have scabies, and that tracks to 5% of the housed population. Additionally, there are other health and safety concerns. 39 to 70% of houseless individuals use drugs, and there is no study data available that says which way the correlation works between houselessness and substance abuse. But let's think about that in, in kind of a more individualized way. Let's say that I am houseless. I'm living in a tent with my two daughters. Am I going to sleep at night? Oh, of course not. You'd have to keep your children safe. Exactly. So while I'm staying awake all night, every night, what is the easiest way to do that? Meth. Meth. Easily. Exactly. It's easily accessible, it's relatively cheap, and it will keep you up for three to five days on a single dose. So there's, there's very real cause and effect that you can look at and say, okay, well maybe these people weren't using drugs when they became houseless, but houselessness has created a situation where they feel like they need to be on drugs in order to maintain safety of the people around them. And of course, the flip side to that, to, to further complicate the whole um, causation versus correlation, is how many people became addicted to specific substances while they were still living in a typical housing environment and because of their addiction they started putting more and more and more of their income into sustaining their addiction rather than paying their rent paying their utilities showing up for work which eventually cuts off your income stream and now have no choice but to be houseless on top of struggling with your addiction so I think that's part of why it's so hard to see which causes which, because I think it might be both, both. causing both. Yeah. It varies from person to person. And like you said, there's no formal study that's been done on this, which is only compounded by the difficulty in general of studying the houseless population because it is so subject to fluctuation and change. You can't have these long overarching studies that would be necessary to track this efficiently. But when you're talking about a population that's constantly moving, like mm -hmm. they don't have a stable location that you know they're going to be at in three months for a follow-up for this study, mm -hmm. it's damn near impossible to make sure that your study results are accurate and that they represent what you think they represent. And then on top of all of these things, there are also other really basic functions that a lot of us housed people take for granted. When you are houseless, it is cost prohibitive to wash your clothing because whatever money you're getting could be feeding you. Are you really going to spend it? washing your clothes when you don't have to worry about how you smell or how you look or whether or not your feet are caked with dirt. Well, and hey, I'm just going to go use the bathroom real quick and I'll be back in one minute because all that waste is going to leave my house the moment I'm done. I don't have to worry about it 
contaminating my living environment. I don't have to worry about finding a place with some modicum of privacy. Right. I just have a room for that. Right. That's something houseless people definitely don't enjoy. There's also no time or space when you're houseless to genuinely relax. Especially here in the Pacific Northwest where nine-ish months out of the year it is cold and wet. Hanging out in a tent? Not the jam. It's, it's just not going to be a good time. You're not ever going to feel relaxed. You're probably not sleeping great anyway. So there are very real quality of life concerns that come along with being houseless. Well, and you mentioned those nine months out of the year, which we are currently in the midst of where we deal with the rain and the cold, and that almost ignores the other three months of the year where we live on the surface of the sun, where from, you know, late June until sometimes early September even, Temperatures are regularly in the high 80s to mid 90s and will sometimes go into triple digits, which I'm aware there are other, there are other parts of the world where it gets far hotter than that. But the people who live here aren't used to that temperature. No. And so it creates more health And hazards. our infrastructure is designed for those nine months out of the year. Our mass transit has to function differently. If temperatures go above, I think it's 95 degrees for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. We are not designed to operate in those conditions. And if your choice is, or you know, you're not really given a choice, but if you have to be outside when the temperatures are in the 90s to 100 degrees or higher, and you don't have shelter from that, that is bad for your health. That is dangerous and life-threatening. Dehydration, heat stroke. There are other things that I can't think of. Sunburn. Sunburn. Skin cancer. That's what I was thinking of. Yes. Thank you. And so just all the way around, housing is foundational to human existence. It has been since we stopped being hunter-gatherers and started forming agrarian societies. This is literally the foundation for modern human civilization, is that you're going to have a house. It could be argued that what really sets modern Homo sapiens apart from early hominids is we lived in caves. We had shelter. That's where we invented fire. That's where we began cave paintings, which is the earliest form of art we have encountered. The, the idea of a safe shelter that is defensible, that is secure from the elements, that is what comes before everything else, and that is what allows for everything else. It is the backbone of modern human civilization. So let's, let's focus on some of the numbers. And for this part of the conversation, we're going to focus specifically on the Portland metropolitan area because that's where we are. And we recognize that these are not figures that are going to translate directly to people in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And but, not even necessarily other parts of Oregon. Absolutely. Portland this is highly is, localized information. 
Portland is much different than Salem, than Eugene, than Medford, than Bend. It is its own beast, but there are still through lines in these statistics that hold true regardless of which area you were looking at, and that is always going to be the case when we're talking about houselessness. So right now, Lance, do you have an indication of how many people are currently experiencing houselessness in the Portland metropolitan area? Yes, according to, I forget the exact name of, of the source, but it's... The Point in Time Survey? Um, yes, the, Portland, the Point in Time Survey done by the City of Portland um, in 2015. So I will say this data is six-ish years old. So I'm not sure if these numbers carry on to today. Like we've said before, the homeless population is very much in flux. It can change from day to day and people come in from, you know, not being homeless or not being houseless and people do manage to escape houselessness. So th this is a population that is very fluid. But according to the Moment in Time survey done in 2015, Portland had 3,800 homeless or houseless individuals. Uh, 3,800. And that includes people who were living in shelters, people who were staying in tents, people who were in some sort of transitional housing that doesn't actually count as permanent housing. So that's, again, a constantly changing number because yes. people are constantly moving in and out of each of those situations. Now, if we assume that that 3,800 people are still approximately what we're looking at for houseless individuals. What pisses me off is that right now, according to apartments.com, there are 8,420 vacant apartment units in the Portland metropolitan area. That is more than twice the number of of apartments we would need to solve houselessness in Portland. And just to expound upon that, that's just apartments.com. That is a website that t landlords and property owners pay to list their property. So that is not inclusive of all available dwellings. Um, I do want to mention just from living in Portland for the last five years, I feel that 3,800, 3,800 is not a tremendously accurate number. Like you said when we started this, it feels like there is an increase in the number of encampments. I have noticed encampments getting larger. I feel like that number is too low, and I feel we're dealing with a somewhat higher number. I would I estimate... I would be saying we're at about 5,000 people. Five, yeah, that's where I would land to, 5,000 to 5,500 in that ballpark. Still, more than enough housing to Far more than enough. So, what is it about our society that makes us say, you don't deserve housing? Even though we have housing available... At no cost to me, at no cost to you, at no cost to you, our dear listener. We just have to say, this unit is available. 
live in it. It's not hard. We literally could go and over the next 24 hours house every single houseless person in the city. And this is true of every major metropolitan area. This is true of most smaller areas, cities the size of Salem with 250,000 people always have empty apartments, always have empty houses. And it is a function of capitalism to say, you're not going to have a house because you can't pay for it. That's not a bug. It's built in. That is a feature of the housing market, which out of all the markets that exist within the capitalist free market is the least really free. It is absolutely manipulated by property owners. It is subject to... It's not just manipulated by property owners, though. Weren't you telling me not that long ago about a random increase to your assessed property value? Yes. I don't recall the details of it. <laughs> uh, but our... Oh, no, not... Yes, um, our realtor... Or not our realtor, our loan officer who underwrote our loan for buying the house that we are currently sitting in, um, he sends us a monthly email saying, hey, your house's value is X. And when we bought the house, it was X. And then a couple months later, it went up to X plus a couple thousand. And now it's X plus a lot more than we ever estimated. And we could sell this house for a very nice amount of money. Now, has your house been professionally assessed at your request? No. Have they come in and looked at any of the repairs or renovations that you have accomplished? No. None so, at all. And not a single thing we have done ourselves has been light, has been permitted. And that's not to say we're doing a bunch of like illicit remodeling. It's just we're very particular about the improvements we're doing. And we say, if like we look at the county records and we say, okay, if this will require a permit, we're not going to do it. And so, like, the deck, that's, it doesn't need to be permitted. And the structure of the deck is very particular in that it is not attached to the house. It is completely free-floating. It does not need to be permitted. Um, the other things, like the floor that we did in the office, that did not need to be permitted. Uh, the only thing we thought might need to be permitted is moving the door. But largely the point is that you have made a number of, at the very least, cosmetic improvements to the uh, house. Yes. None. And you have not had a professional come in and say how no. those improvements have affected the value of your property. The only person who has ever stepped foot in this house and said, this is what this house is worth, was the inspector who came in at our request Back in January, or February, excuse me, in February of 2018. Is that when I bought this house? Yeah. Yeah. In February of 2018, and the inspector came in and said, yes, this house is worth what they are selling it for. And there are no recommendations for improvements or fixings that you could either argue to have done or to reduce the value of the property. 
So it's safe to say then that your property value has increased substantially. Yes. Completely arbitrarily. With absolutely no object with with no objectivity whatsoever other than the alleged demand that is told to us by a financial organization. Thank you for introducing that concept. Let's talk about housing scarcity. Because what housing scarcity? Right. There is none. There is no housing scarcity. There is no housing crisis. All of these things are manufactured to portray a very specific narrative. And when you're hearing about that narrative, you're hearing about that narrative from people who have a vested interest in maintaining the system the way it is right now. If you don't have money to own a home, you don't get to own a home. If you don't have money to rent a home, you don't get to rent a home. You are houseless. So this entire concept of not enough housing is false. It is an absolute I would, om- I would like to call it a myth, but a myth implies that it's benign and harmless and is a thing of the past. It is an intentional deception put on society to tell us, oh, it's fine that you're paying $1,600 a month for your one bedroom. You should be glad that's all you pay because all the others around you are $1,800 a month. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about cost of living here in Portland. And, yes. And what dollars actually get you here. So in Portland, the cost of living to live comfortably, not having to struggle from paycheck to paycheck to make sure that all of your bills are paid, not having to sacrifice meals, not having to make alternate transit decisions based on your financial ability to accomplish them. The cost of living in the city of Portland is $60,195. That is 34% higher than the national average. $60,000. I have never made that much money. I, no. I can't even really fathom making that much money. Until... Just recently, I have been in the same industry since I was 18. That's 22 years. I have steadily and continually moved up career ladders. I have never made half of $60,000. I am arguably making, arguably making the highest hourly wage I have ever made fairly advanced within my career and I am barely past maybe three-fifths of that. Maybe. That might be generous math. So when we're looking at that $60,195, the biggest consideration for cost of living is how much you're spending on housing. And right now, in the city of Portland, rent for a one-bedroom apartment is $1,484. That sounds insane to me, because not long ago, I was living in Salem, and I had a two-bedroom house, nice house, all things Despite the hole in the floor. 
despite the hole in the kitchen floor. It was a nice house. It I was paid, a nice house. I missed that house. I paid $545 a month for rent in that house. Oh, they increased it to 600 a month when Christy and I moved in. I'm going to have to edit that out. Okay. I got $50 knocked off because I took care of the lawn. That's a lot to knock off for mowing the lawn. <laughs> she was paying somebody to come and do it, though. Uh, understandable. So, looking at the fact that I had a two-bedroom house in Salem, which is not far from Portland. A lot of people commute from Salem to Portland. Or vice versa. A lot of people work for the, the government in Salem and want to not live in Salem, which I completely understand. But... $545 and a one-bedroom apartment here in Portland is more than twice that. Almost Nearly three times that. that. And not for nothing, that rent is 84.3% higher than the national average. Which blows my mind. But also ties perfectly back to Housing costs are fucking arbitrary. They are, it, like, they took a dart and threw it against the wall. Like, I mean, like, what do we have going on in this city that is so much better than the rest of the country? That would be so much higher than average. Do we have tremendously huge corporations that employ thousands upon thousands of people? A couple. I think Intel's really kind of the biggest. Nike. Nike, yeah, true. Nike. So Nike, Intel, Columbia, but they don't really employ all that many people. No. But that's that's kind of it. There's there's really no reason. Yeah. Do we have Amazon? No. Do we have any major aircraft companies like Boeing? No. Do we have large movie or television studios? No. Do we have We don't even have great sports teams. Like, we have the Trailblazers. That's it. When was the last time the Trailblazers did anything cool? I don't know. You're asking a gay. Yeah, I know. The point is, housing costs are completely arbitrary. They're pulled out of somebody's ass. And it's time for us to start looking at that <laughs> differently. Because at the same time that we're right this minute talking about housing in the background right now there is a national conversation happening about the minimum wage and taking the the minimum wage to $15 an hour which 11 years ago when we started fighting for it was a living wage but no longer is it's really not as proven by the point that in order to have your $1,484 one-bedroom apartment be the one-third of your income that it's supposed to be, your hourly rate working full-time would need to be $25.68. Now in Portland, we're already at $15. That's not taking into account taxes, is it? No. So we would actually need to be making a fairly significant more. Yeah. more. Yes, so we did not do that math, but that only contributes to the point that our hourly wage needs to be this very high number 
to match these other very high numbers. Right. And this is where conversations about increasing the minimum wage on par with inflation are so important. Because if housing costs were tied to your hourly rate, housing would be a pittance of what it yes. is right now. And if we tied the cost of housing to the average wage of people in an area, that would bring the cost of housing down exponentially. I had more in that, and it just... <laughs> That's okay. Let's start talking about utilities, though, because I, I feel like a lot of time when people are talking about... A, a universal housing initiative. They're the, overlooking these other quintessential components. So when when we're talking about what services are necessary to survive in our modern world, we're talking electricity. We're talking gas for heating for houses that still rely on gas heating. We're talking about water sewer, we're talking about garbage, we're talking about internet access. That one's going to be hot button and I know it. But yeah. let's start so with let's start with the others. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the basics. Um, so, how are we recording this right now? Electricity. Isn't it fantastic that we have overhead lighting at the moment? Without having to burn dark. whale oil? Right. And it's moderately warm in this house. This is true. Electricity provides most of what we interact with on our daily, on a daily basis. I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it gives us light. It gives us power to our alarm clock so that we wake up on time so that if we are lucky enough to have a job, we go to that job. It powers our cooking appliances so that we can make sure that we have safely prepared food. It powers our refrigerators so that we can make sure that we have safely stored food before we prepare it. And it supplies the electricity needed for a lot of other services. When you're looking at utilities that should be considered part of, of just baseline existence, gas is one of them because a lot of places still rely on natural gas for heating and water heating. And both of those things, even though they're heated with gas, still require electricity to function. Exactly. The, the thermostat on both of those appliances that you mentioned rely on electricity. The ignition for them relies on electricity. And any sort of maintenance or anything you have to do on them typically requires electricity. The other thing with electricity, I don't have another thing with electricity, I don't know why I started saying that. <laughs> this is not going to go straight to... <laughs> I'm it's sorry, fine. we have shot this one to death. It's okay, it's actually a lot better than it has been. Yes. Water and sewer service is absolutely essential to human existence. Sewer service carries away your bodily waste after you put it into a toilet. It gives us the ability to wash our hands, to take showers, to wash our clothes, to wash our dishes. And, as Lance was quick to point out... <laughs> Dehydration causes death. We literally die if we don't drink water after, like, three days. 
So it's, we're talking about a fundamental aspect of not just human life, all life depends on water. It's one of the criteria that astronomers look for on other exoplanets to see if there's even the possibility of life. And if there's not water, they just look elsewhere. That's how fundamental water is. Garbage is another necessary thing. And it garbage service helps keep our physical environment healthy, both in and around our house. And it removes breeding grounds for bacteria and mold so that we're not keeping constant sources of disease laying right next to us when we're going to sleep at night. Tick, 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 tick. Internet access. So the internet. And this is where a lot of people, I feel, are going to get upset and they're going to think, you don't have a right to I think even access. people who are on the side of pro-socialism, or at least as an idea, are going to push back on this because internet is seen as a luxury by people who have internet. Yeah. If you ask people who don't have internet... Not having access is a hindrance to a lot of daily functions. When was the last time you did a job application on paper and submitted it to a person? 2003. I have never done so. That was that was the last time I filled out a The program. very first job I ever got, I was asked by a friend if I was looking for a job. I had just turned 16. And I said, oh yeah, I'm 16. I need to get a job, right? And so he went down to where he was working at a local restaurant and said, hey, my friend's just turned 16 and wants a job. And he called me down and said, hey, come on down and you can start washing dishes today. And there was no application. After that, it was every single job I've ever held has been an online application. And not only was the application online, all correspondence regarding it afterwards except for a phone call, maybe, was done via email. I had one job not long ago that the application was online. I did the interview in person, obviously. This was pre-corona. Um, and then the job offer, including my start date, was sent in an email. And I didn't notice the start date. I just saw that it was a job <laughs> offer. And I missed my first day of work. Oh! Luckily, I got a phone call. But when we're talking about internet access being a fundamental right for modern existence, this is why you can't apply for a job without internet access. Most government services, SNAP benefits, HUD, uh, Section 8, Oh, the, the public health care plans. All of these things are accessible online. And I think, because there's going to be the counter-argument of, oh, well, they have those applications in paper, too. You just have to get them mailed, blah, 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 blah. These systems are designed to be accessed online. They have been altered from a state where it was easy to access in paper through mail. They have been brought from that to a format where it is easier, quicker, and more accessible to access them through the internet. 
Not only that, but there are laws that have gone into effect that require government agencies to reduce their actual physical paperwork. And to store all that data digitally online. I, I just recently started a job where I am providing supportive care to a family with an autistic child. And all of my clock in and outs are done through an app on my cell phone. And that is directly a result of the federal government saying in order for people who are getting paid through Medicare to continue getting paid, every agency has to invest in a digital solution so that they are not sticking with paperwork. Because there's there's so much less security, there's so much more waste. Like, I can't tell you over the course of my retail career how many reams of paper I threw away from printed out job applications because even though they're submitted online I still had to print them to do the interviews. I was working at Bank of America when this is relevant trust me I was working at Bank of America when as a company they decided to go essentially paperless and the way it used to be was we would have just this unimaginable amount of paper records kept physically in our branch. And, like, we were not a main branch. We were not the central hub for the entire Seattle metropolitan area. We were a small neighborhood branch, and we had been, like, that branch had been there for quite some time. So there was a lot of paperwork, but nothing like, like, the city of Seattle did not have anything there. And we had to go through... And, like, we each got, like, a two-hour chunk every day for, like, three weeks where we would go to the records closet, grab a box, go to a computer, and grab a document, pull it up on that, whoever was, whoever was on that document. We would pull them up in the computer, make sure that that documentation was there, and if it wasn't, we would scan it in. So I have seen the process of going from paper-based work to electronic work. It was a Herculean task in just our tiny little branch. So this is a very huge change. And it has been undertaken by our government. It is being undertaken by our financial institutions. And it's being undertaken by our healthcare systems. It's ubiquitous at this point. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot function. Well, and we look at... You know, in these unprecedented times, which, God, I hate that phrase and I use it too much, but in the time of COVID, would our children be able to go to school without internet? Nope. Nope. And we are seeing it in real time because kids who don't have internet access are not going to school and they are not receiving an education. In defense... Of internet service providers, this is literally painful to pull out of my body. In defense of internet service providers, overwhelmingly they have risen to the occasion and are providing free or extremely low cost internet access to families who otherwise wouldn't have access at this point. And that is specifically so that their children can continue to participate in schooling online. And that is a fantastic and beautiful and wondrous thing and that actually makes me very happy to hear. But why does that have to happen? 
Why didn't the government just say, hey, if we're going to make all of our schools internet only, why are we not providing internet to all people? And, and also, let's not even talk about our children, because that's kind of weird to do. My husband's been doing 100% of his work from home. This includes video calls. This includes regular phone calls, but because he has to use his work phone, it's a voiceover internet protocol, which means he talks into a microphone on his computer, much like we are right now, and that creates a phone call that travels over the internet to whoever he's calling. His work would be impossible to do from home. And virtually all work would be impossible to do from home without the internet. To kind of turn around and now lambast the internet service providers. <laughs> yes, let's. For eat the rich. The entire length of the pandemic, my husband also has been working from home as has one of my roommates who is an, a, a digital artist and he makes commissions for people and does live stream videos. And because of all of the people in the house using all of the internet, you've been throttled half the time. Not only have we been throttled, but we have gone over our data allocation for four consecutive months. We now have to pay $30 extra Per month to have unlimited data because paying $10 per 5 gigabytes was ridiculous. So you're literally paying more to earn money. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And when you're looking at something like a work from home situation, and my, my husband's job was in the process of transitioning to work from home just in general at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 and the the outbreak of the coronavirus just accelerated those plans but when you're looking at something that is providing your ability to do your job that is no longer a luxury absolutely not and uh, these, these are all very essential things we've talked about, but let's even just talk about our daily lives. How much of our social life is done through networking sites these days? I'll be honest, a lot of my friends I keep in contact with on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Especially right now because of the coronavirus and the fact that we're still... You're literally one of the only people I have interacted with in person in the last 12 months. You and the family I work with. That's... I, my co-workers. And in in this time of, of COVID social scarcity, social media is 100% how I'm filling that void. Absolutely. I, I am keeping up with all of my friends. I am having conversations through various messaging apps that are facilitated through the internet on my phone. And so... This is this is no longer something that we can look at as a luxury. This is something that we have to fundamentally shift our perception of and say, this thing has become so integral to our day-to-day -day operations as a society that everyone must have access to it at all times. And it just, it's just that simple. Same with water, sewer, garbage. Same with electricity. Same with gas. It facilitates an essential human function. We are 
We are social creatures. We depend on interacting with each other to maintain our health, both physical and mental. We cannot exist in complete solita solitary existence. That was not well phrased. Nope. Just keep going. We have to be interacting with each other. And right now, and in general, the easiest way to do that is online. And, and another thing is the numbers that we've come up with for this episode. Do, do you think I went down to the city of Portland's archives? <laughs> on I don't even know where the city of Portland's main building is. I didn't. I, don't I certainly have didn't one. go to the apartments.com main office and said, how many empty apartments are there in Portland? No, I pulled out my phone and I went to Google and I said, how many homeless people are in Portland, Oregon? And Google gave me this result from the City of Portland website with the exact information I needed in that moment. Do you think we've convinced people that internet is essential? I certainly hope that we've convinced people that internet is an essential service. I also hope that it's not that big a leap for everybody to look at these things that we're talking about today, housing and utilities, and say, yeah, you know what, these are actually integral to our day-to-day -day lives. We need to know that these things are going to be there. and. I hope that from today's episode, people are walking away with a firmer understanding that we have the ability to solve these problems. We have the capacity to make houselessness a relic of a bygone era. And, and to further elaborate on that, I'm going to play devil's advocate, which I know is something we both hate that phrase. But I'm going to speak in capitalist terms. I'll put it that way. That's a good way of saying it. <laughs> I will speak in capitalist terms right now where we're going to hear the argument of, well, if you know people don't have to work for their housing, if people don't have to work for their health care and work for their utilities and work for their internet, why are they going to work at all? And you know, in, in other words, how are they going to be productive? Let me respond to that. Yes, please. Why do I need to be productive? Why do you need to be productive? Why does that determine your value in society? My value is not determined by my hourly Your wage. value it's is intrinsic to the fact that you are a person. Exactly. That is enough. But to also speak it further in capitalist terms, do you think it is possible for someone who does not have access to these essential things to be productive? Do you think... That the people who are living in tents on the side of the freeway are going to work? Do you think that they are, in capitalist terms, contributing to a productive society? No. Absolutely that's, not. That's why, largely, the societal perception of the houseless is that they have done something wrong and they deserve to be where they are. Because our culture sees poverty in general, and specifically houselessness, as a moral failing of the individual rather than a social failing of the society we live in. And our capitalist economic system. Yeah. This stuff really isn't hard. It's really not. And 
I, I know that a lot of people, when they hear the word socialism, the hair on the back of their neck stands up, they feel like somebody's looking at them with an evil eye, and they're checking over their shoulder for witches, but socialism is really just the idea that our, our worth is intrinsic to us, and simply by virtue of existing, we deserve to have the things that everybody should have. Housing, food, internet access, all of these things. And these are things, like, they are so minimally essential. We're not saying everyone deserves a, a eight-bedroom mansion in the Hamptons. We're not saying everyone deserves a four-week vacation in Paris. We're saying people deserve to not sleep in the rain. We're saying people deserve to be able to flush their poop out of their house. These are not luxuries. And it's not that hard to get there. It's it's already there. We just have to pull the trigger. We just have to find the will and the compassion to make lives better when it's not our life that's on the line. Didn't we have more topics we wanted to cover? Nope, that was everything. Okay. I feel like that was a very good conclusion to the episode. I felt yeah. I felt so like that, there was a passion in that moment. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at SocialCastPod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash SocialCast. <laughs>